Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to episode 62 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, a revelation as surprising as the this one that we're doing, yet another Friday the 13th film. Yeah, the third. And uh, <laughs> joining us tonight, you know him as the director of The Three Don'ts and the upcoming Fright Fest selection, The Perished. It's Celtic Badger Media's Mr. Paddy Murphy. Paddy, hello. Hey! What's up, guys? And the crowd goes wild. Paddy, you're finally here. <laughs> it's finally happening. This is it. All my dreams come true. Yeah, yeah, you mop your tears, Paddy. This is real life, son. My God. I, I thought it was just a crazy dream. <laughs> the dream's 62 weeks in the making. Um, Paddy, how are you? How are things? I am good. I'm good. I'm I'm kind of, kind of all over the place, just getting ready to be part of this thing. Um, I, I was really... I'm like a bad student, so it took me ages to get my notes together. And even still, they're not they're not really well compiled, so it should be should be fun. Um, you'll probably have a lot more to say about the film than me. I mean, full, full disclosure, <laughs> I watched this between the hours of five thirty and seven this morning, so um, <laughs> I was pretty sure that my notes were kind of coherent. And then I went and looked at them, and they are the feverish scrawlings of a madman. I feel like as long as you have a note there that says homoerotic shaving scene, you're you're fine. Oh, we we'll, we'll touch on that for sure. <laughs> we'll talk about that for forty minutes or so. Um, Paddy, you've listened to the show before. Um, ah, so once or twice. You might not be surprised to learn that this was a first viewing for Mitch. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, that's it's definitely not part of the Shockwaves 100. I know that much. Yeah, pretty confident of that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, my my, um, my Friday the Thirteenth viewing, I think now is one, four, five, nine, and ten. <laughs> <laughs> and completely out of that order as well. I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least at least I saw the first one first. It's pretty much a shit show after that. Um, so yeah, Paddy, for anyone who's listening and don't know, you've chosen Jason Goes to Hell, Final Friday from Adam Marcus. Why this? I think one of the main reasons is the, which it's funny because we were just talking about the order that you've seen Friday the 13th and the order that I saw the movies in was I saw Friday the 13th part one when I was about eight years old and I absolutely loved it. But obviously there's like very little Jason in that movie. Mm -hmm. But I I think being a kid in the late 80s, early 90s, Jason was like a pop culture icon. You knew who he was, even if you hadn't seen the movies. Right. And I remember when I used to go to the video store, you'd see all the boxes and everything. And the reason that like Jason Goes to Hell stood out to me so much was because it was just the hockey mask with like a snake coming out the mouth of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I didn't know when I was like 10 years old when I saw this movie for the first time that there was you know, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight before it. So I effectively went from one to nine. And like, I felt that a lot of the stuff that's in this movie that maybe doesn't make sense or is nonsense or is a bit crazy. The reason that I felt it worked for me was because like I had no um, context of the other films. Sure, so I was just sure. like, oh yeah, Jason always body hops. And yeah, Jason must always do that stuff. So my shock when I went back and watched two through eight and was like, what the fuck was that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I have a soft spot for this one. 
Okay, okay. Hence the reason we're here, I would imagine. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's it. Paddy, you will definitely know what's coming next as well, I would say, I guess. <laughs> I, I have a feeling that it's it's some kind of a, a synopsis or something, right? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, if I count you in, I hope that you're prepared to um, give us your best 30-second synopsis of Jason Goes to Hell. Okay, I'm just getting all my air in. Or out, okay. which, whichever one Three, I need. Three, two, one, Go. Jason's back, but he's blown up almost immediately by the anti-Jason FBI. Some mortician dude wants to eat his black heart and kind of becomes him. Weird. A crazy-ass bounty hunter delivers some Halloween 2-style exposition to Jason's waitress sister that Jason needs a Voorhees to be reborn. Not her, though, because she dies swiftly. The dude from the Friday the 13th TV show is accused of killing her. Jason jumps body to body killing people before crawling into his dead sister's vagina to be reborn. Subtle. He's killed in under five minutes, but we get fan service shot of Freddy grabbing his hockey mask. What the fuck? With one second remaining. Well, well Beautiful. Then. Beautiful. I'm going to go out on a limb here, Paddy, and say that I think you wrote that. Oh, no. What are you talking about? That was all <laughs> off the cuff. <laughs> this, although, like, people, when people do Friday the 13th films, we do tend to get really good 30-second synopses, because that was really good, I think, in terms of the fact you burned through the entire story, pointed out a couple of inconsistencies, and made a couple of jokes. <laughs> and, um, and when we had Boz on uh, doing uh, Jason X, his one rhymed. Yeah, I loved right. Boz's one. Boz's yeah. one was so good because yeah. it did, was it Boz that pre-recorded it? Yeah, he did. It was. Yeah. Yes. That yeah. was so clever. Yeah, he, he, he lost a star for that, but it was still t- it was a uh, full marks of an effort. It was golden. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Right, I think we should just fire into this because, like I you think say, we must. I feel like we must. There's quite a lot going on. So yeah, straight back into familiar territory here after Crystal Lake. Yes, we are, and this was the first Friday the Thirteenth film that uh, was made by New Line. The title, the name Friday the Thirteenth, couldn't follow it. But they could use the word Friday. Right. <laughs> Which is why it is Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday. I see. Not Friday the 13th Part 9. Although the original title was going to be Friday the 13th Part 9. The Dark Part <laughs> that... of Jason Voorhees. <laughs> Which is the name of the behind-the-scenes documentary they're making about it, right? It, it is indeed, yes. Ah. Yeah. Ah. Which I'm actually really looking forward to see because I'd say there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff about this movie that would be very entertaining. Yeah. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, I think it would, uh, it would hopefully answer some of the many, many questions. <laughs> there is a comic book out there, apparently I haven't read it, which does kind of fill in some of the gaps between uh, Jason Takes Manhattan mm-hmm. and Jason Going to Hell. <laughs> so presumably how he managed to find his way back from the, the sewers I, of New York. I could just see him standing on the side of the road like the end of the Incredible Hulk TV show, just like walking down the road, Jason. Sad music playing. I would think if you looked like Jason uh, and you had recently been burned in a, a sewer-related toxic waste incident, you would find it quite difficult to get picked up. And that's why it took him so long to get back. Because he ended up having to actually just walk the whole way. He couldn't, <laughs> nobody would pick him up. <laughs> <laughs> so the first character we meet is Agent Elizabeth Marcus. Yeah, yeah, not just a clever name. No, uh, it's definitely tied into the director. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah um, Mr. Adam Marcus. So, uh, yeah, this obviously, on the face of it, because we don't know she's Agent Elizabeth Marcus at this point, this has all the trappings of a kind of like uh, a dumb slasher film victim, including uh, I did have a, a quick um, stopwatch check on the nudity in this, uh, 4 minutes and 14 seconds. <laughs> Well done, oh, Mitch. Well. Glad someone's watching. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nudity arriving at a rate that I would describe as punctual. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Wasting no time at all and uh, getting some bum on the screen. Uh, but then what we have here is what appears to be a lone woman driving a convertible to a ludicrously oversized cabin. Yes. Um, which, uh, far too big for one person. I feel like she's got mad like DIY skills because like when when stuff starts going wrong in the house she's just like oh well I'll just go out and Wait get like 
you know, she seems capable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you saying she's got mad DIY skills because she's a woman who changed the light bulb? <laughs> no, I'm saying that she seems like capable in the face of um, a broken light bulb, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I'm just saying that uh, based on the evidence as presented. No, 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 like, yeah, within the frames on screen, that's what yeah. I've evaluated. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, like the scoreboard doesn't lie, my 100% hit rate. <laughs> She, she is proven to be quite capable very quickly, though. Uh, yes, yeah, very true. That's true, that's true, because um, no sooner is she naked than the lights go out, and uh, she uh, goes to look around, and we get a first glimpse of Jason here, played again by, in my opinion, the best Jason, Kane Hodder. I'm right there with you. Who uh, looks a bit different than this. He looks a bit uh, girthier around the waist. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, and there's been significant changes to the mask as well, like the fact that it's now growing around, or his face is growing around it. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I've got to be honest, I'm not a big fan of the the look of Jason in this. I much prefer the. Look, I really like the look of him in Part Eight. Oh, I, I can kind of understand that because he's got that kind of stockier. Uh, yeah, I do like that they kind of again tried to. As every director that seemed to come on the franchise did, tried to do something different with the design. It's a point that we'll be getting to later, but I don't quite understand why when he's reborn, he looks exactly the same as this. But yeah. <laughs> it's just a convenience it's, thing, Paddy. Like it's because they already had point. the suit design, yeah. so yeah. yeah. Kane was already wearing it, so they yeah. just went ahead and shot it. But like, ah, oh, fuck it, we'll just shoot it, we'll just shoot it all now. It was also like, I think, from hearing Kane talk about it, like the most uncomfortable suit by Langshot because like he couldn't take the mask off. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, because so, you've seen this stuff around of him kind of on other sets sitting like and you can see his face and you mm. can see like he's got his kind of panda makeup on his eyes. So uh, yeah, yeah, I can see why that would be pretty restrictive if you're used to being able to get a little bit of fresh air. Yeah, but yeah, it looks like what we're getting here is a kind of a, a standard slasher chase. It obviously is not. It is not, no. Uh, he's been lampooned. He has been lampooned. Um, and I love the fact that um, the first indicator that you get that... Um, Elizabeth Marcus is like special forces is because she pulls off a super sweet diving forward roll. <laughs> I do love that. But I also love when she slides over the car because apparently that was like 100% legit. She was like terrified of Kane. So she just like, when she, the way she moved over, like she slides across the car in her towel was just like an actual in the moment thing. But yeah, like she is, remember what I said about her being capable with the light bulb situation sure. she's also incredibly capable at running through the woods with that towel like that's amazing like yeah. I can't get from the bathroom to my bedroom with the towel <laughs> without somebody <laughs> seeing something that they really don't want to see yeah. so like that is impressive neither yeah. can I party and frankly I've given up trying <laughs> And it's funny because, yeah, like, Kane couldn't get the mask off and she also has not been able to get that towel off to this day. She's still, she's still in the towel. Yeah. And it's, it's frankly foul now. <laughs> the intervening years of not being kind to her body or the towel. Um, Facts. Uh, yes, but we it's kind of, it's instantly revealed at this point that this is all an elaborate trap. A trap which I think, in all honesty, has left a certain amount to chance. Given at one point, she does fall out of a window. <laughs> Which, which I don't, which I don't, which I don't. Over, no, she falls over a balcony. She yes. Falls like, uh-huh. and, uh, she... It's like I, I refuse to believe that this plan was choreographed with that level of precision, where she, it... where like it was turning on the outcome of her successfully pulling off a prop fall from a balcony. I'm sorry, Mitch. This this whole thing is predicated on her turning round in time that Jason doesn't chop her up. 
It's true. <laughs> because she only notices him when he's about to chop her up. Um, yeah, I feel like this this plan succeeds, but it's more by luck than good judgment. Well, I mean, I, but I don't know. I, I think if you've got an anti-Jason task force, they've like established he's going to do this. And so what you need to do is you need to look like you're really stupid and fall off the balcony. And then like, I feel like they've gone through all these intricate steps of like a, a choose your own adventure thing. If Jason <laughs> does this, do that. Because, you know, you don't set up an anti-Jason task force lightly. This is this is the offshoot. This is the offshoot in <laughs> this is the offshoot in universe film B story that I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, like Mind Hunter, but about the Jason yeah, anti-Jason task exactly. force. Exactly. Jason is very unceremoniously slash extremely ceremoniously, depending on your outlook, killed here. I think that his actual death is amazing. Well, I've got to say, I kind of like his death, but I hate the fact that he grunts and kind of screams <laughs> and groans. I find that a little out of character. Mm. And I, I think, I could be wrong, but I could swear in one of the documentaries, they say that that's Adam Marcus, that Adam Marcus did all the vocals for Jason. Oh, so, really? Um, so Adam Marcus is responsible for the... Apparently. I will say that, like, I love to see where he gets blown to smithereens, but... What I, I kind of like more about it is that whole, I feel like that first five or six minutes of the movie, or is it about eight, is that's a movie that I'm really interested in, is that whole idea, like Mitch just said, of like, it's almost like a meta thing of, you know, how would you catch Jason Voorhees mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. were a real person? And I think at the time that I saw this, when I was like 10, I hadn't seen anything like this where like a killer got dispatched, like the main character got dispatched in under 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 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 So that kind of stuck with me. It's a cool idea. I, I, it's a cool idea that plays out pretty well, I think. I really like that there's police rappelling from trees. <laughs> and I also so like good. that they, they, they pump round after round into Jason and he just kind of grunts and groans away. So they resort to using mortar fire yeah. to, I, I to blow him apart. I, I genuinely felt like I was watching him die for three hours. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, but like, it, you almost feel like half the budget just went on this death for Jason. Mm, oh, it's it's incredibly the- elaborate. Incredibly. <laughs> and then, yeah, obviously you're going to get to this, but like, I love that his heart is just perfectly intact then as well when it lands on the ground. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. just next to his uh, decapitated head. Yeah. I think it's brilliant when uh, we go straight to the morgue from this. Well, you're or is there, you're unless there's anything you want to touch on? Because you do get a little glimpse of uh, Creighton Duke here. Uh, oh, who- that somehow knows where this top secret uh, FBI operation is going down and he is lurking in the trees uh, just watching this unfold and he's like, I don't think so. <laughs> but this is what I mean. When I saw this after seeing one, I was like, this dude must be like this franchise's Loomis. Like, he must be like Jason's arch nemesis. Because yeah. nope. like right from the get-go, he lets on like he knows everything about uh, I, I, I love Stephen Williams in this movie, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it's like, yeah, we, we can get to it. I think it's so funny. He totally just, it, it just seems like he is like the Wikipedia page for Jason Voorhees. It's just been parachuted in in character form. <laughs> I really so like, true. I mean, I, I, like, I like the character of Creighton Duke as well. Apparently, Adam Marcus sees real kind of franchise potential in him because he's wanted to do a spinoff for years. I'd, I'd, I'd watch that. <laughs> I I would actually I'm sorry but I would also watch uh, especially if it was like a 10 part Netflix series about Creighton Duke on there yes <laughs> that is 100% the correct platform for a Creighton Duke spinoff when he just hunts down other kind of movie monsters like Pinhead oh and... my god yes. but they can't get licensing for them so they're all like be- like knockoffs Nail like Scary Terry <laughs> <laughs> Freddy <Screen> Sleep Knives <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I've actually written a treatment for that now, and it's here on my desk. I'm going to drop it, <laughs> drop Fantastic. it to, to Netflix ASAP. Yep, yep, yep. It's got to happen. <laughs> um, I think it's really funny in the morgue here when um, you know, it's like you're so used to seeing these be such serious sequences in films, sure. with, um, mm-hmm. and kind of like kind of like so, or sad or feeling kind of thing. You see like a dead body, and somebody's talking about um, all caused by you know multiple stab wounds, whatever. I really, really like it when the guy's like, oh, um, cause of death was uh, extreme explosive trauma. And rather than just like, wheeling out a body, they're just putting like component parts of Jason in a pile. <laughs> like, extreme explosive trauma. It's like, that's putting it pretty fucking mildly. I do like the mortician in general. I think like he's kind of funny. Like uh, his name's Richard Dent. He's really funny. Just like, like when he's like, what, what does he say when he's holding his head? He's just like, this guy's dead on shit. Oh, this guy's dead and shit. Yeah, it's just like you're not expecting it at all. Um, and then he's like, a, oh, strike that last remark. For me. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think like this film sets out right at the start with like a pretty playful tone. Like it's not taking itself remarkably seriously. Yep, which I, 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 would, I, I would agree. I would agree. <laughs> just as well because it gets fucking insane. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 but I, I think you're right there, buddy. I think that like this film knows precisely how seriously to take itself. I think that that is something I would say in its favor. And is it around this point as well, when he's wheeled into the morgue and everything, that we get the nice little Kane Hodder cameo? Yeah, Kane his, Hodder's one of the security guards outside. His glorious mullet. Like, that mullet <laughs> is just wonderful. Like, I want Jason with that mullet. That's what I want. He's kind of got that mullet in this film. Like, he's got really oh. weird, wispy hair that I, I find unsettling. Um. <laughs> I don't want to go too much further without talking about the opening credits because I find <laughs> one thing, the way that it cuts between an extremely austere looking morgue uh, that's shot very seriously to the credits and an insane Harry Manfredini score is uh, really interesting, but watching it at, like, at this point about quarter to six in the morning is absolutely <laughs> headache inducing. So when you're doing that before your first coffee of the day. <laughs> The, the other thing the other thing that I wrote down about the credits was just the question, are these credits in Block Capitals Times New Roman? <laughs> yeah, they, it is a very um, early 90s credit sequence. Um, it's functional, Paddy. It's functional. It is. It, it's, yeah, remotely functional. That's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Harry Manfredini's score is amazing. Like, you, you said it best, Mitch. It's just a series of stings. It's just like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But as you say, it's going from this like really, well, kind of relatively dry in moments, like where, where the, the mortician is just kind of being very blasé and reciting stuff to just this crazy score. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fairly disconcerting, all right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what else is disconcerting? The fact that a man is uh, apparently hypnotized by a beaten heart. And then eats it. Yeah. Yeah, that. Yeah. Well, Paddy, thoughts? Yet again, I'm going to keep referencing back, but like with no frame of reference for Jason, I was like, well, this is clearly how all of these films go. Jason's heart is somehow comes out in every movie and then takes over people's bodies. But we have to assume, we have to make the assumption that there is something incredibly alluring about Jason's heart. Like, do you know when you see like drumstick lolly or something like that and it's just, you want to leave it where it is, but it's a drumstick lolly, you're not gonna. Um, I feel like Jason's heart is the drumstick lolly of... Of, I'm sorry, know, Paddy. Okay. <laughs> That's a take. I'm sorry, Paddy. I don't look at Jason's heart and think. <laughs> but it uh, doesn't matter what I think, because the coroner obviously sees it, like you, you said, Paddy, as a delicious drumstick lolly, and uh, feasts upon it, and uh, is possessed by Jason. Um, and then we get this other mortician who comes in. Yeah, he's a, he's a proper, like, Johnny Weisenheimer coroner. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he comes in, and it's uh, he's in it for, I don't know, 
30, 40 seconds. His, his screen time does not top out a minute. <laughs> but he also seems to be completely blasé to the other mortician just standing there covered in blood, grunting. He's just kind of like not phased by his colleague at all. Oh, yeah, no, I, his... like, I, he, he treats that with complete passivity. It's also quite possible <laughs> that by the end of any given autopsy that that guy looks like that. <laughs> he's just like, I never thought the toe and go. <laughs> and he's just grunting. It's like, man, fucking hard day in the cadavers. You know what I mean? <laughs> I've been elbow deep. <laughs> yeah, like, that's that's a fair point. <laughs> Interesting that the guy's kind of taunting the corpse of Jason, oblivious to the fact that he's actually in the presence of Jason. Um, and he says he'd really like to take a crap on Jason's mask. But, but then expands on that and says he'd really like to take a mango-sized crap on Jason's mask. It's a strange, strange line. To, to become a mortician, you, it's all about spec- like being specific about things. So I feel like he could tell the other guy was standing there grunting, just staring at him. So he was like, okay, he's not getting this. It's a mango-sized crap. Like, <laughs> you, you get me? He's, um, he's a detail-oriented guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And perfectly <laughs> illustrates the size because I can I can imagine the size and heft of a mango. Yeah, and that would be impressive. I mean, that dude's got to be got to be re- you know, he's he's doing well with fiber and whatnot. I really like the fact that you don't actually see the um the kind of breakout that happens next. I think that the fact that that's relayed to you through because obviously we cut straight to this kind of sensationalist uh, cable show American American Case File. Yeah, American yeah, case yeah. file um, that's kind of describing it, which I think is kind of like I say, it's a fun way to present that. I think I think it's kind of cool, but it's also kind of handy for like a quick, like you say, um, Paddy grounding it and just giving it a little bit of a previously on Friday. One of the things I'm trying to remember: when does Kane Hatter make the line, like say the line about, uh, "Oh, he won nothing but a big old pussycat anyway"? Is that when the? That's just when the mortician's leaving. Uh, he's already killed. Oh that. yeah, he's already smushed that guy's face into the table. <laughs> And then he's kind of leaving and Kane Hodder gets to kind of, I guess, uh, slag and himself. This adds a bit of weight to your what you were saying about the fact that he must leave on any given day like that. Because yet again, the security guards don't seem anywhere <laughs> phased that he's covered in gore and viscera. They're just like, ah, yeah, yeah, I'm going to make a stupid joke about Jason here. Aye, and, uh, like, no one's giving a fuck. Yeah, that, that does kind of clear that up for me. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to install that as the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the idea, like you say, of the kind of... Um, it's kind of like a obviously a clear kind of knockoff of like sixty minutes or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. So I think to an early nineties audience, it was like, oh, I know exactly what this is meant to be. Yeah. I I, I um, think I think as as a kind of device for this, I think it's really cool. I really like it. And we're intro- introduced here to Robert Campbell. He's the host of this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, he plays a bigger part down the line, but he delivers some interesting exposition about Jason, which you might not have known beforehand. And allow me to elucidate. Please do. Jason, born 1946, which would make him 73 years old this year. Okay. To Elias and Pamela Voorhees. Oh, we've never had Jason's father's name before, yeah. Oh, no, he drowned at 11, which we knew. 83 confirmed murders. Oh, That was definitely not the extra 117 in Jason X. <laughs> <laughs> or all of those kids that are on the boat that drowns and Jason takes my <laughs> Yeah, which did well. They kind of vanished halfway through the movie, and then just. (laughs) But yeah, I think that I think the big thing that we get here is a proper extended introduction to bounty hunter and exposition man Creighton Duke. Also weirdo because he's asked, uh, (laughs) "I'm going to tell you two words here, and I want you to tell me what the first thing you think of is Jason Voorhees." And he goes, "Well, that makes me think of a little girl in a pink dress sticking a hot dog through a donut." And I was like, "What?" 
I laugh so hard every time I hear that line. I know that it doesn't make sense and I know that it's just absolute fucking nonsense. But just every time that moment happens, I just, I get a little giddy burst of joy at how ridiculous that that made it into an actual feature film that got released. I I love it. I think it's all in the delivery. It's Stephen Williams is actually... <laughs> Stephen Williams is such a great actor. He's got like such gravitas generally, like, and he's so like... He's taken this role seemingly very seriously, but he's saying fucking nonsense. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's just sat there playing with a knife and uh, changing the entire mythology of the franchise as he goes. <laughs> it's as I just I love Stephen Williams from reading some stuff about the film as well. It sounds like a lot of what Stephen Williams did is exactly what Stephen Williams wanted to do. Like he would say to Adam Marcus, "I want to do this," or Adam would say. Like, oh, do whatever you want here. And he just kind of do whatever. And I think that that's very apparent in Stephen Williams' performance. Yeah. Like, apparently mm-hmm. it was what? his idea to dress like a cowboy. Yeah, exactly. He was like, I just want to be a cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do your film as long as I can dress like an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it. Yeah, fine. Why not? Do what you want. But I just, I, I, I just really love, as I say, I think for me, there's a weird context to create in Duke that maybe other people might not have because of the order I saw the films in, because I just created a whole mythos for him when I was 10 of like, He's been battling Jason. For, I guess that's what everybody who's watched the film did, though, because there was no backstory. <laughs> I, 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 love that, I love that you yeah. thought that. I love the fact you're sitting there being like a standoff, eight films in the making. <laughs> this is going to come to our head. <laughs> but like, that's it. But that's exactly the way the film paints it. Like, if, I mean, I, I'd seen a bunch of them by the time I watched this one. Uh-huh. And then I, even now I was watching I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Should I know <laughs> Have I missed something crucial? Because because he does seem like it's he's obviously he's a he's a bounty hunter, right? Within yeah. the within the within the context of the film, also, but yeah, obviously a Jason expert, right? Because because <laughs> yeah. um, he's, he's that's possible. Um, because yeah, he's he trots out as a direct quote, I believe. Uh, he wears people's bodies like other people wear suits. Now, Patty, as we discussed, I have not seen many of the other films in the series. Um, I think, yeah, so three out of eight prior to this one. So <laughs> even today, when I was watching this and it was like, he wears people's bodies like other people wear suits. I was like, is that a thing? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. Like, yeah. with no context. You're just like, okay, I guess this is normal for this franchise. You know when Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? When you first meet Belloc in the jungle, like, <laughs> yeah. like right at the start, immediately you know that there's a past relationship between Indy and Belloc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Immediately. It plays out like that, but then you're like, no, hang on, wait. That, Raiders of the Lost Ark's the first in a series. <laughs> like, this is the end. Do you, think that, <laughs> do you think that it assumes a lot of knowledge that does not previously exist? Kinda, yeah. 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 There's yeah. there's a part of me that wonders because Creighton Duke as a character feels like a character that would have been written to be in the Friday the thirteenth TV show if it had been about Jason. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's a part of me that wonders was that where his character originated from was like early drafts of the TV show or something? Because <laughs> as you say, you feel like you're supposed to know this entire deep backstory for the character. But what I feel is like when Stephen Williams comes in he does deliver it in such a way that he actually makes you incred- uh, like unsure of yourself. You're like, shit, should I know this? So I think that's powerful. I was going to say, yeah, there's something to be said for that. <laughs> but like, yeah, that like, I, that's kind of cool, actually. But yeah, every time I hear the, the hot dog donut line, I just it's just mental. one of my favourite lines in cinema. I'm mental. Like, <laughs> Absolutely mental. Did anyone else notice that Creighton Duke's doing a quint from Jaws? 
He's basically said, for $500,000, I'll bring you the mask and the machete and the whole the whole damn thing. Hmm. Okay. Uh, oh, he's literally ripping off Jaws. I never... <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, oh. I love the fact as well that, like, um, absolutely died in the wool bounty hunter here because, like, 83 people are, have died at this guy's hands. And he's not, <laughs> rather than him being like, I am the only person in the world who knows the precise methodology involved Fuck. in killing him. No, but, like, what I'm saying is, he's like, rather than him being like, right, so I know this. So, what I'm going to do is, for the greater good and to immediately, presumably, spare countless lives, I'm going to share it with you and we will collaboratively work on an idea for how to kill him and put this into practice. Rather than that, he's like, 500 grand. <laughs> no, 500 that, fingers. 500, 500 <laughs> grand. <laughs> but, but if he goes that route, Mitch, then he has to go to the anti-Jason task force. There's so much paperwork. Yeah. It goes off into that Mindhunter series. He, he's he's a capitalist at heart. You can, yeah, you can tell. Exactly. I just love the fact that it's like, you don't want to pay... <laughs> I will sit in my fucking house and more people will die. <laughs> and, no, and, and his compound. He has a compound. Oh shit, he does have a compound. Yeah. Like a cult leader. <laughs> now there is another, man, there's there's innumerable <laughs> Creighton Duke spinoffs, like ideas available. Honest to God, the sky is the limit. Yeah, because you can do an entire mockumentary. have a different job. <laughs> I just love that, as you say, Mitch, like he could... Creighton Duke has he has all the knowledge of all this crazy shit that is you know will actually get rid of Jason, but he's basically holding the people of Crystal Lake to ransom. Absolutely, that like I'll do nothing unless I get five hundred grand. Hundred percent. Um, but on a, on a more important note, how how does he have this knowledge? How <laughs> how where does it come from? Where does the where are, where are the ancient tomes this, that speak of Jason Voorhees? A 73-year-old man? <laughs> where are, uh, where are uh, the incantations? Perhaps they're in the Necronomicon. I was just about to say it. Table at one point. But where the fuck does he get this knowledge? And Wikipedia wasn't around back then, like, so he couldn't have wiki, <laughs> yeah. he couldn't have wiki Jason. You know, Wikipedia. Yeah, it would have been amazing <laughs> if you just seen him, you know, like running his finger along a big shelf full of encyclopedias, and it's like, ah, here we are, V for Voorhees, just one big, <laughs> one big thick one, three foot wide. Boom. And this is the Crate and Duke podcast. <laughs> but does he bring the dagger, or is that something that they already had? I can't quite remember. Because if he brought it, it's like. Why the fuck did he have this thing? <laughs> Jumping a bit ahead, Paddy, I can tell you that what happens with a dagger is that he throws his trusty <laughs> knife at a baby. <laughs> it's a woman holding a baby. A woman holding a baby, but it could quite easily oh, yeah. have speared a baby. And she catches it, and presumably the power that resides within her transforms it transferred into, into the dagger. dagger. Oh, okay. I always thought it was just like a family heirloom that he had like stolen. That was always what was in my, my which head. Would, which, would be, which would be very on brand for creating cheap. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I got your dagger and yeah. I'm not going to give it back unless you give me 500,000 pages. <laughs> ah, the Voorhees dagger handed down from one generation. Of <laughs> from Elias. Handed from Elias down from Elias. To Diana. <laughs> what? Oh, man. After this, we're, we're introduced to Steve about now, or are we introduced to, we are to introduced Diana? To Steve. We have another scene with Creighton Duke where he uh, acts the goat and is arrested. Um, yeah. Also, um, oh. uh, just just before we uh, before we move on, I think it's important to point out that the scene with American Case File and this intro to Creighton Duke that we get this concludes on the fact that American American Case File will pay the half a million dollars to to kind of like, to kind of see this through and to enlist the services of Mr. Duke to dispatch uh, Jason. But yes, you're quite right. We do meet Stephen and a couple of other kind of main players around this time. 
Yeah, yeah, there's quick fire character introductions. We're introduced to Diana. Uh, at this point, we don't really know her connection other than she is warned in no uncertain terms that Jason is coming for her with the sole intention of killing her. I can't yeah. imagine Jason having any other reason for a house call. And like, yet again, Creighton Duke doesn't give her any indication of what Jason's coming for. Like, as in, he doesn't he doesn't say anything other than the fact that, you know, like Jason's going to come and kill you. He doesn't say Jason wants to, you know, use you for X, Y, Z. He, d- he doesn't give any information out to anyone, but then again, they're not letting him break his fin- hurt their fingers, so... Yeah, that's true. It's fair. Yeah. And, maybe, and, you know, maybe that check hasn't cleared yet, you know, so he's still hoarding that knowledge. <laughs> when we're first introduced to Steve, who is John LeMay from the, the Friday the 13th TV show, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. straight away, he's, I don't know, at, at that time, he doesn't feel like a very atypical horror hero. He's a useless um, fucking drip. <laughs> there we go. That's the... the... <laughs> That's the terminology. No, you're you're you're, you're right though, uh, buddy. He's very much the kind of anti pretty much everything about what you'd associate with a kind of leading man or somebody playing this kind of role normally. And and especially the fact that like he kind of you look at him and you think you think he looks a bit nerdy or a bit kind of geekish or you know. And then he's but he's wearing like the Letterman jacket, and you're like, is he a jock? Especially in these era of movies, you're like, where does this character actually fit in? Like I, I like what is he? Yeah, um, because yeah, yeah. you kind of you want to put him into that stereotype from this this generation. It's like he's just a weird character, <laughs> especially when he picks up a bunch of random hitchhikers who all like one of them seemingly just thinks seems to think he's some sex magnet. Absolutely, um, right away she's like, "Listen, do you want to just give up all your plans for the night and come and blast me in the woods?" Yeah, and like I've rarely picked people up in my car, but when I have, they've very infrequently Party, offered to have sex with me in the woods. But, like, I'm hoping that one day one of them... <laughs> <laughs> Friday, I saw this when I was 10, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I pick people up in my car sometimes and hardly ever. <laughs> exactly, hardly ever. Um, <laughs> but, like, I, I do like the... Yeah, his character just... He's, he's a strange one right out the gate mm-hmm. um, because I think you're kind of right, Andy. He doesn't do a lot for the rest of the movie, but he's kind of... He's poised to be our leading man. There's a hint later on that perhaps he ran away when Jessica told him she was pregnant because yeah. there's a bit later on in the car when he's in the car with Jessica where he says I'll never I'll never leave you again I won't run away on you and then she punches him in the dick which is <laughs> which is really funny but uh, yeah it's just I get the feeling he's just a bit of a flake and a bit of a a bit of a dork and so there's no better guy to take on Jason Voorhees Sure. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah but uh, yeah, the, these hikers—they're—they're—they're uh... they're, they're fucked. Um, <laughs> and I do really like some of the kills in that section. Um, I, I do particularly love the two that are you know boning, and she gets a road sign down through her yeah. torso or her, uh, from her shoulder. Yeah, I've got yeah. A lot yeah. to say about all of this here. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, like, like uh, this entire this entire scene is insane. See, just for just for people that are listening that haven't seen it, right? So yeah. Around the show, going around this really quickly before we move on. Basically, in the diner, you're introduced to Diana, who we will come <laughs> to learn is Jason's sister, sister, and her daughter is Jessica. Yes. Um, and who's the, the ex partner of Stephen? Yeah. And also in this one place where Creighton Duke. And also the police chief who is punching massively above his weight because he's dating Diana. Diana, yeah, Diana's a very attractive older lady. Yeah, but um, but Diana basically uh, after all these exchanges, uh, yeah, she tells uh, Stephen to come meet her to talk about Jessica. So he's on his way there when he picks up these teenagers. Um, yeah, because and- as you do. 
yeah, everything about what unfolds here is insane. Not least uh, the kind of third wheel of the group just selflessly giving up her spot in the tent for the night so she can sleep in the cold while her two friends graphically shag in silhouette. <laughs> yeah. Right next to her in the tent. And like, I feel like I, I get this impression that the dude thought that night was going to go a different way. Well, he leaves like, the flap of the tent open. So exactly. Perhaps he's hoping for uh, someone just to creep in out the cold. And someone does. Yeah. True. <laughs> they sure do. There's a bit where the guy says, uh, "Are you ready for Tony the Wonder Llama?" <laughs> yeah, this is this is this is my main. I'm not going to say great, but my main curiosity about this. When the when, yeah, when the guy's getting ready to go for it with this woman, uh, are you ready for Tony the Wonder Llama? <laughs> I did a Google. Okay. Uh, and I found this. Is Tony the Wonder Llama some kind of sex toy? <laughs> so this is the closest I could find. And it's, uh, it's on packtheatre.com. So this might be a show. Tony Goes to Hell, the final half pee. <laughs> Tony the Wonder Llama is a struggling lounge singer whose parents had sex wrong when they had him. And so he's half made of pee. And his son, Junior, is a pitcher of pee. This is his final adventure. Tony goes to hell, the final half P. That played um, on August the 23rd, 2017. Right, I see. Right. Yet again, I feel like it's common of a lot of these movies to have dudes say really creepy or weird or strange or odd things right before having sex. I'm thinking back to even some of your previous episodes where like from movies of this, of like the mid 80s, early 90s, there's always a dude saying something like, really cringy right before the act mm-hmm. but never anything about llamas that's a new no 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 that's a <laughs> new occurrence this is another thing that when it happened i was kind of like i was sitting watching this in my bed this morning and he said when he said are you ready for tony the wonder llama i was like i actually you know because i didn't have subtitles on and i rewound it twice <laughs> <laughs> i was like oh yeah that's that like that does definitely seem to be what he said I like the bit that comes up right after this where he's kind of struggling with a condom rather. Oh, and yeah. Like, oh, and he does, he, he does, it's that old chestnut of a, oh, I hate condoms. I'm allergic <laughs> to latex. I'll withdraw, baby, I promise. <laughs> it's it's like, so true. No, I, th- I think it's really funny because obviously like he's, he can't get the wrapper open and basically he's just like, ah, oh, fuck this, I'll just get you pregnant. <laughs> well, she kind of encourages as well. She's like, ah, fuck it, leave that thing, it's fine. It's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then I, I think one of my favorite shots in this movie is next. I just love that Adam Marcus went full with the whole like with the whole Jason kills people for having premarital sex in the woods and blah blah blah. With the whole like this the shot where he walks on the condom wrapper outside is just <laughs> yeah, yeah. so glorious. I think you're you're right. I think that this is like the ultimate example of the promiscuity being punished thing, isn't it? It, it is, and then. I think even in moments like that, when I see the foot go by, I'm like, oh man, it's Jason. And then it cuts and it's Richard Dent again. And I'm like, oh, what the fuck? I can't. Oh, yeah. Like, Jason's not Jason in this movie. No. Uh, no. And but- we're blasting forward at a rate of knots towards the uh, aforementioned shaving scene. Oh, um, yes. So we're, we're kind of introduced in a little bit more detail to police deputy Josh here. And um, when he jump scares Diana out the back of the restaurant we also very briefly meet his weirdly anachronistic 60s girlfriend it's very strange yeah like (laughs) this is this is this is incredible like um yeah when she turns up with the kind of scarf around her head doing this kind of delirious overacting thing she feels like parachuted in from a a film from like 30 years previously that thing you do yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's 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 so so strange like um i'd love to know the kind of like how that made it to screen the way we see it I'm not saying it's a bad choice. It's just a really, really eccentric one. 
Oh no, it's a fucking weird one. Yeah, and like, I also find that like there's this moment with the deputy where you feel like maybe he has like some kind of a crush on Diana or something because of the way no he is. I, like, yeah. Oh, exactly, Diana. Yeah. It, as we've already said, the the police chief is well pump, pump, punching above his weight, pumping. but <laughs> pumping above his weight. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, and then it, when she comes along, I, yeah, it's it's a very surreal moment to see this, yeah, kind of golden eras fifties actress marching around this town that is Crystal Lake or isn't? Like, where is this in relation to Crystal Lake? Oh God, no, I think it's Crystal no. Lake because Robert Campbell on American Case Files says something about him. Um, cutting a swave back towards Crystal Lake or something. What kind of shocked me about it was like, I don't think we've really seen much of Crystal Lake as a town in the other films, have we? It's always just been like a camp in an area. Like, has there been much? I think the most of Crystal Lake you ever see is when it's been retitled Forest Green in part six. Yeah, that's true. And then obviously it got retitled back before Bart and I. <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah, it's Crystal Lake again in part eight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Josh's girlfriend's dispatched in a really funny way with a car. Oh, she gets smushed in a car door. Mm-hmm. Um, and then almost immediately we see Josh strapped to a table. Yeah. Nude, being shaved. Now, bound with like leather straps as well, isn't he? In a very kind of BDSM y. As, as far as I can remember, he has like a leather strap around his chest and a leather strap around his. You waste. Yeah. And it just looks very, um, it's quite beautiful. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> not, wow. not the word I was going to go for. <laughs> okay. Um, when we were watching this, actually, Andy, your, um, your wife, Jackie, correctly, um, drew a Hellraiser comparison to right? Blood, direct to Bloodline. Yeah. 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 And I, I can see why she, why she went there. Um, but I, what the question I want to ask is why is he shaving him? Right? Is it something to do with perhaps Jason being anti mustache? Because the coroner has a mustache. Mm. I feel like Jason's anti-facial hair in general. I think Jason still thinks he's an 11-year-old boy or something, so he doesn't want, you know, a beard. Um, <laughs> do you think it was more... That feels like a leap, but okay. Do you, some... <laughs> do you think it was something to do with the fact that he kind of knew he had to kiss him to transmit this the weird wriggling worm thing? Yeah, maybe. Maybe he's like, yeah, he doesn't like the stubble on his mouth. Um, <laughs> That's so, so weird. <laughs> I know my my missus now doesn't like when my beard gets a bit thick. So, right. I I mean I could imagine. Well, no, that I would can't. be a stretch as well. <laughs> I can't imagine Kathy strapping me to a table and shaving my face in the <laughs> nude. But like, well, I, I I take it back. I can't imagine it, but it would never happen. Um, <laughs> but uh, such yeah, a visual I, storyteller. <laughs> I think there's something in what you're saying about the fact that like. Some people don't like kissing people with facial hair, so I think maybe Jason's just he's like, I have no problem with like going mouth to mouth with you, bro. I just I just don't want any of that bushy mustache. I'm not into Selick. Not re- a Tom Atkins fan. Are we re- are we reframing this as like an amorous scene? Is this like the equivalent of the pottery thing from Ghost for this film? It's incredibly homoerotic. <laughs> it is. Um, it's very sexy. It's very, it is very sexy. sexy. Yes, you're quite right, <laughs> um, but wait. Revelation, light bulb moment. Oh, J- Jason doesn't he know he's getting a mustache when he's the coroner because when he looks in the mirror, he only sees Jason. Oh, he only sees Jason. <laughs> so what? Oh shit! So there is. But when he sees him, I think you're right. So because when he sees him and he knows he has to kiss him, that's where the light the light bulb goes off for Jason. Like I'm not kissing that. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> well, well I, I suppose the last seven minutes of this podcast can get itself to fuck. I... <laughs> <laughs> question i mean imagine if this imagine if instead of that uh 
Richard Dent playing the mortician. Imagine if we had had Tom Atkins, you know? Oh, don't, oh. don't even. Hello. Don't tantalize. Don't dangle that carrot. <laughs> don't dangle that mustache in front of me. <laughs> yeah, so Jason now transfers. I think this is the first time we've... Well, no. But yeah, he's eating the heart and this is the first time we're seeing him or getting the idea that he's doing a transfer. Um, it's not long after this that he goes for Diana. Are we right? No, no. Because he's now... the next scene. Yeah, because he's the deputy now. So he turns up at her house and... She's not at all, well, she's kind of weirded out a little bit, but it feels like this is behavior he's done before. She's like, hey, stop it. Like, um, I, I thought this as well, actually. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's Josh, I believe, yes. is um, yeah, yeah. The, the policeman that Jason hops into next. But yeah, when he turns up at Diana's house and turns up behind her, like, I mean, fair enough, it's not Jason Voorhees that's standing behind you, but it's still a guy who's broken into your house. And she turns around and she's just like, Oh, Josh. <laughs> exactly. It was just like, it was like, this, is like, this is a really weird thing to be this blase about. You get the impression Josh has had a few drunken nights shouting outside Diana's house. Diana! Boombox over his head. <laughs> just like covered in like kebab sauce and piss stains on his, on his trousers. My... Just fucking wrecked. I need a Voorhees to be reborn. <laughs> Um, but yeah, um, Diana gets stabbed in the back here um, before Stephen intervenes, stabs him, throws him out the window. Um, <laughs> Perfectly summed up. See, at this point, I, I mean, I, I know that I haven't seen as many slashers as either of you, right? But I think that I also have seen enough to not continually be this fucking naive. So, like, um, Diana dies here. She does, yeah. Um, she imparts a little bit of knowledge first. She does that. I'm about to die. Here's a bit of salient info. Yeah, totally. Um, and I believe I believe her dying words are save Jessica. But also, see, when, when Diana dies, I, my reaction was, oh, Jesus, I assumed that she'd be in it till the end. And it occurred to me that every time anyone dies before like the half hour or 40 minute mark in the film, it's like, oh, I just assumed they'd be in it for the long haul, despite the fact that slashers, <laughs> like as a structural necessity, have people die every 10 to 12 minutes. And like when that happened, I was like, fuck, who saw that coming? <laughs> But you, you also think that the two words of wisdom that Diana would impart in him wouldn't be save Jessica, which is kind of ambiguous and weird. Like, yeah, as I'm in Jason's sister. Yeah, exactly. Or just like that guy's Jason or something, you know, like yeah. something, something more helpful than just save Jessica, which like, I'm sure he would try to do anyway. Um, but yeah, yeah that's and true. it's all, it's all for naught anyway, because Stephen is immediately arrested and charged with the murder of Diana. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's understandably <laughs> a suspect under the circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he he is in the room she is dead and he's kind of he doesn't seem he's like it was that guy it was the deputy he fell out the window and you're like yeah right, uh-huh. fucking dude, whatever <laughs> he's, also, he's also covered in blood <laughs> yeah which doesn't help his case at all yeah yeah like they just turn up and he's like look i know what this looks like okay but hear me out He's like, look, I'm a mortician, okay? <laughs> That's why I'm covered in stone blood, I swear. In my spare time since you last saw me, I've become a mortician. Steven is his own worst enemy, I think. Yeah, that's so true. Like, I mean, obviously he's in an extremely tricky situation here, but he continually makes it much worse for himself by explaining things very poorly. Yes. Well, he's about to give someone else the chance to do an explanation because when he's in the prison, yes. uh, he happens to be in the cell right next to a certain laid-back bounty hunter called Creighton Duke. Which, yeah, like, I, I, yet again, this is one of my... I mean, there's three Creighton Duke scenes, four Creighton Duke scenes in this movie that I absolutely adore. The first is the the, the the line we talked about. The second 
is when he's in the diner and she says, what can I get you? And he says, I'm going to kill Jason Voorhees. And she's like, okay. <laughs> Do you want fucking Coke or what? Like, <laughs> like, and then this scene and another scene later, but like, I just, there's moments of Creighton Duke where I'm like, I just want this whole film to be about Creighton Duke. I don't care about these other characters sometimes. I just want to see what the fuck Creighton Duke is doing because he's completely insane. He's like the Tracy Morgan of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he is insane because we'll quickly learn that uh, he's pretty forthcoming with information, provided you have fingers to pay. I think it's really funny that, like, for bounties, he accepts that in money. But for information, the only currency he accepts is breaking fingers. <laughs> but the question is, do you think if it was posited to him on the show, if the guy had said, well, I don't have $500,000, but I can get you 500,000 fingers to break, that he might have been like... Okay, we'll, we'll negotiate. 750,000 fingers to break, okay. See when Homer Simpson was skipping through the land of chocolate? Yes. That would be creating just dan- dancing, along a, dancing along a hallway of fingers. Um, see, see, when, see when he's like, because um, he, obviously you don't know that the finger break's about to happen, but when he's like, oh, are you ready to pay? And he's like, yeah, I'm ready to pay. He's like, give me your hand. This scene is framed to my eyes very much like they're about to kiss. I do, I do feel like there's elements again of that kind of like two men in very in prison in very close proximity, and it's like, come here, I'll give you what you want if you allow me to inflict pain upon you. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's... like, uh, it's like I, I don't know what I was expecting. Finger break, fairly low on the list. <laughs> Creighton Duke ain't that kind of bounty hunter. He just wants fingers. <laughs> <laughs> oh but yeah, God. he um he he does dole out some information after he gets to break three of Stephen's fingers? Uh, that sounds about right to me. He yeah, breaks some... two fingers. Two uh, fingers. Upon the first break, he uh, imparts the information that the only way to kill Jason is to destroy his heart. Um, obviously, we know how this works. More info equals more fingers. Um, Stephen has his uh, second finger broken. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is fucking ludicrous. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? It's about to get more ludicrous. Right? I know. Because he breaks, he breaks his fingers, right? And then tells him that Jason needs Jessica to be reborn. Doesn't tell him why. Stephen offers the third finger. But uh, yeah. Duke goes, uh, this one's on the house. <laughs> and then he's like, uh, and this is the bit that gets me. In a Voorhees was he born. Through a Voorhees will he be reborn. And only by the hands of a Voorhees will he die. Now that is read like an inscription. Where the fuck is he finding this information? in the Voorhees encyclopedia that yeah. Mitch referenced earlier. The one that was off screen, but yeah. like, yeah. It's in the comics. I bet it's in the comics. Yeah. <laughs> Why the fuck does this need added to the mythology at all? <laughs> I do. But like, do you, do you ever feel like maybe Creighton Duke is just winging it a little bit? Like, he's like, if I say some cryptic shit, it might be right. Like, Holy. There's, there's a one in five chance. Holy just... shit. Could you imagine if this entire thing was a lampoon and the fact that she kills him at the end is a complete coincidence? <laughs> like, do you, do you maybe get the feeling that he's like, he's posing this whole character of Creighton Duke is like, oh, I know everything about Jason Voorhees, but he's just really fucking lucky. It goes back to what we said about the start with uh, Agent Marcus. He's just fucking lucky. He's not. Um, I he's not that or he's just an absolute wind up merchant, which I think would be even better. <laughs> I mean, how the fuck, right? See, when he throws the knife later, right? Like, and she catches the knife and it turns out the mythical dagger. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. 
how did he know that was going to happen? Why wasn't he like, fucking hell? That would be a great insert shot if it just cut back to him and he's like, what the fuck? Like, he didn't expect it to happen. That would be good. <laughs> not going to lie. Not going to lie, guys. Really surprised that worked. <laughs> <laughs> Creighton Duke uh, just he gives Stephen this knowledge and then Stephen like roughs up his buddy yeah poor Randy yeah. yeah yeah I think it says a lot to what we're saying earlier on about Stephen and how he's kind of like a bumbling oaf for most of, most of this film it's like I think like the fact that he actually breaks out of a prison and I still find him borderline impossible to take seriously it says a lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly but it also makes shows you that like even poor randy is like a step below like he's he's like oh what's up steven and like puts his face right up and you're like oh randy don't don't be that guy like <laughs> you passed the exam you're a cop like don't ah oh, no yeah. um yeah don't trust steven what are you doing like, um, yeah I think, Poor really, I think it's really funny that when steven escapes he heads to the diner and at this point i was like the diner is like HQ for the good guys in this one. <laughs> yeah. Also, oh. by the way, uh, Rusty Schwimmer in here. Oh, I was just uh, going to say. Joey is, B is fucking amazing. Joey B is like one of my favorite, is my other favorite character than Grit and Duke in the film. That line, um, nobody's touching that fucking ray of sunshine, is <laughs> golden. Absolute gold. And that was apparently ad-libbed. That was, she was meant to just say nobody's get nobody's touching that baby. And she came out with nobody's touching that fucking ray of sunshine, which was much better. Perfection. Yeah. So and she's she runs the diner. Um, she yes. has a son, uh, and her husband is a short man. It looks like they have a really nice, loving relationship. That's mm-hmm. the part yeah. I really like about uh, Joey B. Um, and and him. God, she but, yeah. fucking crush him in the bed. Man. <laughs> he's like, she would. <laughs> he's at her mercy. She fold him like a fucking deck chair. She just yeah, she's she's the dom in that room and just use him as a dildo. <laughs> <laughs> in his entirety um, <laughs> we, we get um, this really weird moment here or kind of like I, it, it's kind of supposed to be a nice moment but it, it plays out kind of strangely when um steven gets his first ever moment with his kid because the baby is steven's kid yeah and um he kind of like uh he wanders through the back and uh, finds the kid when he comes in there and then ward uh one of the other employees at the diner possibly their son i think um, he's their son yeah, yeah, yeah. He um kind of gives him his car to go to the foodie's house. Um, yeah, I don't. I like. I feel like this moment should feel bigger than it is. It's it's a kind of odd moment, all right. Because like Ward, yet again, it feels like a lot of this film has parts where we feel like there's history that we're maybe missing out on. And like, are we to get the vibe here that like Ward has some kind of a connection with Stephen that he's like you know has reason to feel, or is it just that natural thing of like, oh, you're a dad who hasn't got to see his yeah, kid before? I think it's not. But yeah, uh, it's a moment where in a film that I, as I say, I feel is very silly a lot of the time and kind of in characters like Creighton Duke embraces its silliness in other parts when it tries to get a bit more emotional or a bit more serious, you know, in tone, it kind of, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't quite land. Um, yeah, I would, I would say that's fair. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I want to talk about this. I think this is strange. Um, so Stephen's next stop is the Voorhees house and loads of stuff goes on in the sequence that is important that we'll get to. But um, the book that he kind of gets his information from when he gets here is the actual Necronomicon yeah. from the Evil Dead. Correct. I understand why that's there. I understand why it's a nod to. I understand the kind of the, the kind of audience that would appreciate a kind of nudge wink in that way. Is that massively jarring to anyone else? Me, I don't appreciate it. I I find, I, I find that annoying. I think there's a lot. Like it's. I think when this now has fallen under the New Line banner as well, 
I think that they were maybe 20 years before shared universes became a thing. They were trying to start building this mythos of, oh, you know, they're all connected. Um, I will say that I'm not personally a huge fan of the, the kind of fan service stuff in the movie as well. I actually think the movie would be much better served without that stuff. Because mm-hmm. I do think it is a, it's a, it's an original enough Jason movie that it doesn't need all this kind of fan service stuff. I can imagine that when people saw it in a theater in 1993 in the States and stuff that were fans, they probably were whooping and cheering at the side of a Necronomicon. But it's kind of like in a Marvel movie now when you see something that foreshadows, oh, they might cross over with this thing. And you're like, God, just fucking tell the story you're telling. Like, stop deviating off into other things. But Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I get that. And then it also posed the question that is Jason a deadite? That was a big thing that people talked about for a while. But oh, I yeah. Or a demonite. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, uh, Stephen uh, very quickly falls through a hole in the floor. As he's wont to do. He's a fucking idiot. Uh, (laughs) Falls falls through a hole in the the floor as uh, Robert Campbell comes busting in on his uh, enormous cell phone. Yeah, Robert Robert Campbell is a host of American Case File, is here, he's on the scene, and is immediately painted as this absolute bloodless ratings hungry arsehole and like i was watching a bunch of movies when i was trying to pick figure out what to come on the show with and i was watching ghoulies 2 right before i watched this <laughs> and there's a character in ghoulies 2 and i was like watching the two the character like this the guy who comes in to take over the carnival and robert campbell i was like they're just like the same character they're just this cliche 1980s early 90s kind of general douchebag who just cares about getting laid and getting loads of money. Yeah, yeah. Um, totally, totally. And that's Robert here. We find out that he stole a corpse. Diana specifically, <laughs> yeah. Family, yeah. Diana. And then he boasts about, uh, I stole the woman's corpse and then I went home and fucked her daughter. And, and he and- seems pretty pleased about it. Like, he's chuffed. That's so smart, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and who was on the other end of that phone? Like, is that his fucking boss? Like, his boss, like, <laughs> good mom, job, man. Good job. Mom. His mom. <laughs> oh, good job, honey. That's great. <laughs> Your father and I are very proud. <laughs> yeah, but like genuinely, who was on the other end of that phone? Um, who the fuck is he talking to? Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking like producer or something like that because he's kind of like, oh, go and talk to whoever in props and stuff like that. But because basically the well, reason that he's stolen the body is because he's going to hide it in the house so they can do a kind of faked real dead body discovery on camera. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's all it's all totally fucking reprehensible and um, pretty elaborate. Uh, and we matter. straight away want him to die. Like, the second all this is playing out, we're like, oh, yeah, this guy needs to be dispatched ASAP. 100%. Yeah. Well, no sooner does he finish this phone call than Josh busts in and mouth rapes him with a, with a mad, horrible tongue thing. So um, it's fine. Not only is, was he a horrible person, but, like, now he's he's Jason, which is probably a slight improvement um, to, his, <laughs> to his personality. Yeah, he's, he's, just, he's just become slightly more likable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now we're kind of like, ah, you know, he's not so bad now. He's just trying to mouth rape people. <laughs> Which we don't know. He could have. He could have been doing that before as well. <laughs> also, when he's Jason, he shuts the fuck up. Always does. Exactly. So that's, uh, that's crucial for this asshole. But yeah, um, Jason jumps from Josh into Robert's body at this point, and I think uh, the scene where Josh melts down here is fucking amazing. It's so good. I love the practical. This was K and B at their peak. I think. Like a lot of the effects in this film are, 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 while there's some, like like you say, not being a massive fan of the Jason design and stuff, I think mm-hmm. like moments like this, the the melting scene and even some of the creature stuff, I, I think is done really well. But yeah, it's a glorious, melty, goopy. I fucking love <laughs> it. I think it's great. Yeah, no, it is. It is. It's, I, I think it's probably the best isolated moment in the film for me. I will say that where we're going to from here is actually some of my favorite stuff. Like as in, I think once Robert becomes Jason, this is maybe my favorite portion of any of these body characters as jason 
because he feels more threatening or something than even though he looks like a douche. There's just something about him that he feels more like a kind of unstoppable. He feels like Jason again to some extent. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's because the first time we see him go up against people with guns and, you know, like at genuine threats. Well, he, um, he terminates it here. He, 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 oh, big time. He just busts into the, the police station. The police station and just starts fucking everything up. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I actually like, I, I agree with you. And I think that like, I maybe hadn't realized that that was why until you said it. I think that you're right. I think that because obviously the guy is kind of like, he's kind of quite broad and quite tall. So, so and I think that he really sells it. Um, I, he, I think of the Jasons were served, yeah. Like he's the one that most kind of, it, it, even though he is a TV douche, like he just there's something as as Andy just put it. It's it's like it's a mixture of the the actor and the scene. Just the fact that he breaks into the police station and starts murdering everyone, and these are armed people who should be able to stop this guy. And so you kind of get that first moment of, oh, fuck, this dude's actually kind of unstoppable. And you're right. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that it's pr- like of all the, the Jason kind of iterations that you get in this, I think it's, the, yeah, you kind of feel like it's you're kind of due for one of those at this point. It's he lasts a lot longer than either of the real Jasons, like when he comes, when he's actually true. Jason Voorhees. Also true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you not feel like it's all <laughs> slightly undercut by his braces? I love the braces, man. That's a costume <laughs> choice now. If the Terminator had had braces, I think it would have been like, and I think it would have been better, man. It would have just looked like... But yet again, it has that weird 50s aesthetic to it, like to some extent, like our, mm. our 1980s Wall Street. Yeah, yeah it's... This, this kind of weirdly formal thing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolute chaos ensues here. Robert attacks Jessica. Stephen kind of intervenes. They try and get away in a car. He stalls Robert by running him over, which is enough to slow anyone down. Um, it should be. Uh, I, I, he explains the situation to Jessica again, um, like very he ex- poorly. He explains it incredibly badly, and it makes him sound like a crazy person. Obviously, there's no way to explain this and make it sound rational, but he's so hysterical while he's telling it. It's just like, of course, she thinks that you're lying, you fucking sociopath. It's like this is like she's he's so bad every time he has to do this in the film. <laughs> And then, like, and plus, it it doesn't help that it's like, oh, your new boyfriend guy that you're fucking sleeping with, and etc. He's evil now. I swear. That's why I ran him <laughs> over with my car. Honestly, and I like, was, I was stopping the evil. And I know I killed your mother, but like, I, I I know you think I killed your mother, but I was trying to fight off the evil. Then it's like, it's like this guy is just. He's digging himself deeper and fucking deeper. He, he he spends so much so that he spends so much of his screen time in this film incriminating himself. <laughs> yep, that's it. Um, uh, yeah, so she she flees again, understandably, informs the police, and then we get a kind of satisfying moment when uh, Stephen's cop pal that he uh, beat up to get out of the prison earlier Randy. on uh, finds him in the street and punches him in the face. I don't like the scene with him and Randy. I think I think it's silly, and I, I feel like it kind of pulls away from the the tension the film's trying to build a little bit they have this weird three stooges scene between them um i don't mind the, the way it starts like the bit i was talking about but see the whole kind of like when they pull the guns on each other and stuff like that i think yeah that feels like <laughs> that, that that feels a little bit too capery for my liking <laughs> i i i like it's one of those scenes where i do like i think it, it would have been a good scene if it was dramatically shorter like all we had to do was get the idea of like where, where they both kind of resolve their shit or whatever but like, yeah, it goes on so long and I think Andy hit the nail on the head. Like we're losing the momentum of what we were gaining by seeing, you know, Campbell going along, fucking everything up. And um, we're kind of lingering on this for just that bit too long. 
yeah, 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 I think so. I, th- I think it does. It's probably like it's probably the only time in the film where you feel like the momentum gets like properly stymied. Yeah, because I do think even though it's like it's a fairly well, it's an incredibly fucking outlandish film. It does at least have a sense of pace a lot of the time that it knows like just keep pushing forward, just just keep Jason doing whatever he's doing. But like, yeah, in this moment, it tries to kind of go into some kind of weird body territory, and it just neither. Um, John LeMay or the actor playing Randy I just don't feel like they have the chemistry to pull that kind of scene off also especially true. not with how long it goes on yeah yeah, um, that's, that's that's really true yeah that's a really good check I also don't feel like we need the scene that comes right after in the cafe either I, I feel like there might have been a way to pull all this together into one big massive set piece rather than again jumping onto another location again just so we've got more bodies to kill yeah um, yeah I, I don't know I, I think the reason that I enjoy the cafe scene is just because it is fucking mental. Like, um, like we just get that, the, the girl that gets thrown through the door at the start of it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that's fucking golden. And then we have, um, we have Rusty Schwimmer. I, I think her death is one of my favorites in the movie. Yeah, um, same, same. Like, because it's just, it's just funny when you have a loud mode character and he just fucking hits her in the mouth and it just fucking closes up. It's so, I, I, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I get what you're saying about the the fact that the set pieces are kind of all over the place, but I kind of feel like there's enough still kind of fun momentum pulling through this of just of just pure outlandish shite. Um, <laughs> um, but even poor Ward gets dispatched out the front, doesn't he? Uh, pretty fucking. Yeah, yeah, rather than pretty messy. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you actually, right? Um, and again, this might have just been the fact that I was watching it on uh, very early in the morning. But it seems like the version of this that's on Amazon Prime, which is where I watched it, um, it seems like it's been pretty heavily cut. That um, sounds like, because I know there's a director's cut, which I actually, funnily enough, haven't seen. I've only ever seen, like, the original, the VHS that I had, and that's what I, I watched before this as well. Um, um, I, I, I feel like, um, in the, because um, when I came in, Andy was watching the second half of this, so I just rewatched the second half with him, and there was loads of stuff. And a lot of the time, it's, like, some of the murders and some of the violence yeah, so around the more... this section that, like, you really feel like um, it, it, seemed like it, was t- it seemed like it was played out um, it, a lot longer. Yeah, it's, I think it was more some of the, the, the more instant graphic moments, like the spear thing coming through the woman's chest in the tent, some of the more graphic sexual stuff, because mm-hmm. there was yeah, yeah. a couple of moments of thrusting where you were, like... Uh, Oh, this definitely wasn't in the first one I watched. Like, <laughs> I, like, no, I definitely would have remembered this. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I only saw two thrusts. Uh, here, here there were four and a half. Sometimes that's enough, man. Sometimes if you sometimes two is enough. Thrusts, you, you'll, you'll get your eighteen. Like, <laughs> yeah. But th- this was also uh, around the time that like horror movies were moving more into the unrated territory. Mm-hmm. And there was your own rated cut and your NC-17 or whatever theatrical release. Um, so, as I say, I, I, the, the version I've seen definitely, like, both on VHS as a young fella and now uh, had a lot of the graphic kills and stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure on the nudity side of it. I definitely, I definitely remember a lot of nudity, but yeah. Um, but, like, for example, I don't know, Mitch, in the version you watched, uh, the way he dispatches with um, Rusty Schwimmer's husband, it's the... He dunks his head in the... The fryer. The fryer. And yeah. we get a kind of a precursor to the Jason X um, fucking ice uh, cryo, cryo freeze thing. It's like the exact opposite of that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I that's that's handled... Um, the, what you see of that is um, so minimal that I actually got to the end of that scene and wasn't clear whether or not he died. 
Oh, right. Yeah, because as I say, I think maybe I've seen the same version as you then, Andy. Because um, like that's a lot of the deaths are quite graphic. Yeah. yeah and, which is something, again, I think in Ireland in the early 90s, a lot of horror was, I'd say it was possibly the same in Scotland. I don't know. But like like horror was very censored. Um, and we, I mean, there was stuff banned here. Like The Exorcist was banned here. Texas Chainsaw Massacre was banned here. So we had to get like bootleg VHS of those movies to watch them. Mm-hmm. So like when, uh, when I was growing up, there wasn't a lot of like ultra gory violent stuff that I could watch. So I think when I was watching this when I was like 10, it was like the most violent thing I'd ever seen. Um, which of course, when you're 10, is the coolest thing you've ever seen. Sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, boobs and violence. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I do think it's worth noting that there are a few different versions of the film floating about. So um, definitely, I think the unrated cut is the one that I is my go to. Ah, okay, okay. Right, okay, okay. So we're, we're hammering on here. Yeah, this is this is this is actually it's gonna, it's gonna be really hard to like discuss this in chronological order. I'm trying to find a way, <laughs> trying to think of a way to kind of tie it together kind of neatly because there's a lot going on here. Everyone dies in the cafe, and Everyone, they, yeah. when they're about to make their escape, they realize that the baby's missing, and there's a note from Craig. <laughs> like, of course there is. Of like, course they're fucking. It's something to the effect of "I've stole your baby." <laughs> Give me five hundred thousand fingers. <laughs> <laughs> If you're not here in half an hour, I start breaking a baby's finger. <laughs> That's like the ultimate prize for Craig Duke right there. <laughs> I love the fact. So, so yeah. So basically, to, just to kind of quickly assemble or kind of players for the um, final standoff, Creighton Duke has inexplicably kidnapped the baby and taken it to the Voorhees house and left a note for uh, Jessica and Stephen to uh, go and meet him at the Voorhees, ho- uh, Voorhees home. Everybody goes there, and uh, as soon as they get there, um, Duke is very quick to talk about all the various things that are necessary to get uh, both her and her <laughs> child out of danger. And it's like, if you were that fucking bothered about that, don't take the baby to where the final standoff's happening. <laughs> and also, like, he's so voluntary about information now, where he's, he's been fucking, like, cagey about it for the rest of the movie. Um, yeah, but yeah. now... Now shit's getting real. He's like, yeah. oh yeah, here, look. Here's a full list of all the shit I know about Jason. He's yeah. just, just going to get to the end and just be like, right, I understand that I gave away a lot of information in the heat in the heat at the moment. Here's the invoice for the amount of fingers I need. <laughs> yeah. But um, we basically have Campbell show up and we and uh, he tries to... Does he grab Jessica first before going for the baby? No, no, no. Um, Campbell doesn't turn up. Uh, um, Campbell being... Oh, just, shit, just, yeah. Uh, Newscaster yeah. Jason. Yeah, newscaster Jason. Newscaster uh, no, Jason. We have um, Ed, Sheriff Ed turns up and yes. Randy turns up. And there's a question of which one of them has Jason hopped into. Oh, which is kind of cool, I think. Oh, sorry, yeah. They're both talking. Since That's what I don't get. Jason care. decided he's going to talk. Like, is that something... Like, we Yet again, we haven't been shown that anywhere else in this that Jason, when he takes over these bodies, has use of their, their voice box because he's always just grunting. And mm. stampeding around. So yeah, I do think uh, when it came to that moment, I was like, well, neither of them are Jason because they're both talking. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, then yeah. when I realized it was Ed again, I was like, oh, fuck, what? Um, <laughs> yeah. And I've seen this movie before, but even still, I was like, this, what? Um, <laughs> See, in the, in the, one of the longer cuts of this at the start, when Creighton Duke's getting interviewed, he just goes, and also every fourth body he takes, he can talk. <laughs> <laughs> and then he just breaks one of Campbell's fingers as he tells him on the show. <laughs> I love that. Apro- <laughs> apropos of nothing, Creighton Duke falls through a trapdoor in the floor. Yep. <laughs> yep. And then he finds Diana's body, um, am I right, when he falls down? Yeah, yes. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, um, yeah, this is this is this is this is all pretty mad, actually. Yeah, so so um, it ends up that Randy is the one who's been 
inhabited. Yeah, we learn that because Stephen slits his throat. Uh, yes, he does. Yeah, and doesn't die, or doesn't Jessica kill Ed? She does. Like, she actually kills him. <laughs> yeah, she she, stab, she stabs him to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, and you're like, you're like, when this is all over and done with, Missy, you've got a lot of fucking explaining. To you. you just killed this police <laughs> officer. Like, I would it, just use the. I, I'd go down the Stephen route and just blame Jason. <laughs> they go off on a mass killing spree after this movie and it's like yeah jason did it yeah, yeah. That's weird. <laughs> but yeah you're right um so uh yeah randy's been inhabited by uh jason he gets his throat cut and at that point jason's heart from the beginning has grown into a malformed devil baby <laughs> because biology yep well <laughs> the thing about jason is uh creighton duke could have told you this but you didn't pay up is that jason's heart is a demon baby like that that is <laughs> Factual information. Yeah, <laughs> I hate this, but really? <laughs> I, I hate this wee thing. Yeah, I, I'm kind. I'm kind of. I'm kind of with you. Um, uh, I, this, is, this is a step too far for me. This is the film jumping the shark a little bit for me. I, I can kind of agree on this. That like, I feel like that the idea of the body swapping Jason, I'm actually genuinely okay with because I think after eight entries that are all very much very similar it was interesting to do something different. Mm-hmm. But I do agree that the demon baby creature roaming around the house and it kind of feels a little bit like something from like, I don't know, it kind of feels a little bit like a basket case moment or something just yeah, in the wrong true. movie. Yeah. I have to say that the part that I selfishly enjoy about this scene is the fact that the demon baby decides to crawl up its sister's vagina. And oh, which... I know. I've got that. I've, that's the bit I've got the least amount of problem with is that... <laughs> He chooses his point of entry via the fanny. I mean, we yeah. we would all choose that way. <laughs> <laughs> but like, and then I love that moment where he looks at Duke, is it? And he's like, D- "Does the Voorhees have to be alive?" And he's like, "No." And I'm like, "Well, then why the fuck didn't he just stick around and do it to Diana when she died earlier in yeah. the movie?" Wow! Like what wow. the fuck? <laughs> that's that's a that's a fair shout. Um, but, but yeah, um, at this point, through a Voorhees, uh, he is reborn, and there he is. Nine and a half minutes, including credits, left. And this is the first real sustained look at classic Jason that we get. Yeah, um, and, and as I say, both incarnations of, of the Jason in the hockey mask with the overalls that we get, are they literally last for about eight minutes each side of the, each side of the film. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I know that Adam Marcus has kind of famously said that he he, he kept Jason as a prize for the audience, like that you know, it should be a big moment when they finally see him. Okay. And I do think that there is some semblance of that, that like, yet again, I think it harkens back to seeing it as a kid. And when you're a kid, it's like, when you do get to see Jason pop up like that, uh, you're like, oh, fuck, yes, he's finally here. And I, I do like what he was trying to do with it. I do have questions about why Jason is reborn exactly the same as he looked before he was blown up by mortar fire. Mm-hmm. I might have to be and... amazed if he was just a baby. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I just, there are definitely additional questions there for me, but uh, <laughs> baby Jason was the way I would have gone, yeah? Yeah, 100%. Just, just fucking stomped on it. Like, just just but smashed again, it like at the start of proxy. Oh, yet again, right here, we get a moment where uh, we're supposed to 
suppose that there was this whole backstory with Creighton. This is my fourth favorite Creighton Duke part. Oh, yeah. Where he grabs Jason from behind and says, hey, remember me? And you're like, no, because you weren't in any of the other fucking movies. Like, what are you talking about? Jason might, but we don't know who the fuck they are. <laughs> yeah, like, but it's like he's saying it to the audience and we're like, no, we fucking no. don't. Ah, Creighton Duke, my nemesis. Apparently, yeah. uh, Jason killed Creighton Duke's girlfriend. I see. Ah. Um, that's the mythology that I read. I see. Okay. Ah, okay. uh, poor Creighton Duke. I feel sorry for him now. Maybe that's why. He, is that why he likes breaking fingers, or was that something he had before all that went down? I I'll have to read more of the mythos, like read a comic or something, yeah. to find out if if that's part of why he enjoys breaking people's fingers for money. Maybe it'll be um, answered in our Creighton Duke multiverse Netflix series. <laughs> Maybe, but yeah, Creighton Duke is fairly swiftly dispatched after that. Yeah, um, bear hugged into incapacity. Again, something that I feel like is uh, trimmed in the version that I saw, I think. Adam Marcus has since come out and said that he doesn't die. What? He's since, <laughs> he since said the Duke doesn't die, which is why he wants to continue the, the Duke-iverse. Ah. The Duke-iverse, oh my God. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do, to some extent, I, I, I do enjoy Creighton Duke's death in some ways. Yeah, quotes death. Um, but yeah, I, I also look at it and I'm like, he's been built up for this whole movie as like the, the Jason Voorhees expert and I'm the only one that can stop him and all this. And literally he's like, he's just grabbed and bear hugged in like seconds of meeting Jason. He's fucked. Yeah. And you're, like, you're like, break his finger, break his finger, quick. <laughs> like, it's all you got, Creighton. It's all you got. I've got um, to say, though, this, uh, Creighton Duke dies here, right? We're, 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 all, we're all sad about that, given her that he's such a fan favourite. But uh, I really, really like Jason beating the shit out of Steven. Oh, it's fucking wonderful. And and <laughs> hear, hearing Kane Hodder talk about it, apparently he really did fucking give John LeMay a couple of slaps. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I think if you watch it is kind of, you can maybe see it a little bit. But yeah, I do love that Steven's still trying. He's still trying to be like, I'm not a total dork. Like, I'm actually, and you're like, no. He's just getting slapped around. Yeah, like like he basically he basically like gets his ass handed to him long enough to create a diversion. For me, that I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of that cat and mousing with some of the other victims. I felt like I know that it's not necessarily a Jason trait, but I I enjoyed it so much in this moment that I I felt like a little bit more playfulness like that might have worked. Some of the kills in this are maybe a bit quick. Yeah, but yeah, sure. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, ultimately, like, yeah, for as hilarious as this is, and I wish I could have watched it for longer, Jessica um, manages to uh, stab him with the dagger that was thrown to her so irresponsibly earlier by Creighton. <laughs> um, and uh, Jason uh, hits the deck and is literally dragged to hell by demon hands. Clues in the title. Yeah, not, <laughs> not much more you can say. No. He is pulled down into hell. As a last ditch attempt to drag Stephen down with him. I actually really like this. Some of the effects here, the hands coming out and stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's some cool imagery going on. Even, I mean, you got those kind of early '90s VFX going on, the blue lights coming out of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, compared to some other films from the era, I don't feel it's as. They, I think they not hold up well, but like they're not as as distracting. But I would have loved to have seen. I know that there was uh, miniatures that they wanted to use to do this and I'd love to see the, the footage from that so hopefully in the documentary yeah. they'll show what that looked like and also apparently there was a demon baby that came up which uh, is probably the only tie-in between this and the perished I guess we need to talk about the final stinger in this film yeah yeah one of my least favourite scenes in the film personally oh right right okay, okay. so yeah we um, we so uh, sometime after this Stephen and Jessica we have presumed uh, reconciled dog finds a Jason mask lying in the dirt 
um, and uh, distinctly Kruger's hand emerges and drags it under the ground. Well, it's very much Freddy Krueger's hand. It's 100% Freddy Krueger's hand, yes. Well, it's Kane Hatter's Kane hand, hand in a Freddy Krueger. <laughs> 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 really? Yeah, but it's most certainly clothed. And as... straight away what I get from this is like, is New Line, they had said, like in the documentaries I've watched and everything, it said, you know, that like, this was a stopgap film while they were just trying to get Freddy vs. Jason made. And I do feel like this moment is, I don't know, I'd I'd be curious to know, like, if if Adam Marcus, if this was something that he pitched or whether this was something that New Line was like, oh, you need to put in something that cues up a potential Freddy and Jason moment. Mm -hmm. Because, I don't know, I just felt a little bit like when I first saw Prometheus and there's a moment in that that I felt was very fanservice-y, that I felt like the film didn't necessarily need it. I felt like that with this, where I was like, I, I kind of felt... As I said before about the, the Necronomicon, I'm sure people whooped and cheered because they've been waiting so long to see this iconic kind of slasher fight happen. Mm-hmm. But I definitely of all the moments in the film uh, that like, to me, make it unique or stand out, I just feel like this was a moment that was added by studio execs. Yeah, know, if, I was, just if, if I was a better man, I would say that that's what it was. I'll tell you what, no matter what the, the official line is there, um, when I was 13 and I saw this, I, <laughs> I, I had an enormous horror kid boner at this. Uh, I... It literally had five knives coming out of it a bit, like the boner <laughs> itself. Uh, <laughs> that does anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Handle with care. <laughs> like, I, I'll admit, like, that, of course, especially in that era, we, that's all we wanted to see. And then, obviously, we got to see it many years later, and Kelly Rowland was in it. But, yeah, yeah like, um, yeah, I just feel like, it, it is a cool moment for fans of both franchises, but it's just, like, it is a very fan service kind of thing mm-hmm. but I, I don't put that down to Adam Marcus because I definitely feel like it was if I was making that movie and they said you should put Freddy's glove in there I'd be like fuck yeah I will that'll be fucking awesome yeah um, so yeah and, and as you say I think uh, fans of both franchises got kind of what they wanted at the end of the movie which was that knowledge that it's coming yeah yeah sure sure I was trying to work out is that Nightmare 5 where J- uh, or Nightmare 4 where Freddy is brought back by a dog pissing fire on him yeah, yeah, it's four. four. Yeah, we've, we've uh, talked about that. Yeah, yeah, I think Morgan that. Peter Brown. I think that's why it was in my head. I just because Joe and the dog came up to the mask at the end of this, I was like, "Oh, that dog's gonna piss fire on the mask." Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and Jason's gonna come back because when dogs piss fire on stuff, it brings slasher icons back. That's oh, it. Um, also, uh, uh, Kincaid's dog was called Jason. Indeed. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. yeah exactly. There we go. So um, yeah, we've come full circle. Yeah. And we're at the end of Jason Goes to Hell, the final Friday. Yeah. Of course, it was not. It was not. No, 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 no. More become. But for but, now, Andy. Yeah. Thoughts. Ugh, I've never. I've. I've always had a bit of a an issue with Jason Goes to Hell. I had seen. I'm like kind of the opposite boat of Paddy. I'd seen a bunch of them before I got round to seeing this. Obviously, I'm 38 now. So when I was 13 and Jason Goes to Hell came out, it was like the most exciting thing possible. Yeah. Um. I've also got a massive soft spot for Jason Takes Manhattan. So coming into Jason Goes to Hell, I couldn't have been more excited to see how he would get back from New York. I didn't get any of that. I got a complete unraveling of, I mean, what is admittedly a pretty flimsy premise and a pretty flimsy mythology. Mm-hmm. But I got this uh, whole new world building thing going. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it worked for me when I was 13. Uh-huh. And uh, I don't think it particularly works for me now. Okay, It seemed like a whole lot of unnecessary footering. Mm-hmm. And I still feel that that's kind of the same thing. Okay. I come at the Friday the 13th franchise for one thing. 
and although you get that here, I don't know, I think I feel like the footer in with Jason as a as sticking a, point. I do have one quote from Adam Marcus, but like obviously I, I totally understand where you're coming from because I think if I had seen if I had seen six even, like if I think of my favourites in the franchise, if I'd seen four or six or even seven before this, I probably would have seen it at ten and been like disappointed. Mm-hmm. Um but I do one quote from Adam Marcus that I do like is he's like, if you if you want to see a film with Jason going around the hockey mask killing people, there are eight of those movies already. Yeah. And I think that's where I come to it is that like, I appreciate that he being a young dude, he was 23 making the film kind of just got to do something. Maybe none of us would ever get to do, which is go completely fucking mental with a franchise. Yeah. yeah, But I think that's where that's like an appreciation from like now as a filmmaker being like, Oh, that's like fair play. You got to go make the film you wanted to make. 23. Yeah, I mean, being yeah, handed, yeah. Being, handed, being handed the reins of a franchise like Friday the 13th and you're 23 is a massive thing. Yeah. And to be the co-writer on the script as well, uh, to, be mm. trust, to be trusted with that side of it. It's pretty it's incredible. A, it's a massive thing. And, mm-hmm. and do you know what? I might not necessarily like it, but I, I do appreciate them trying to do something different. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I think I, I land somewhere in the middle on this one. I mean, I, I think that there are, there are elements of this that I have like a decent amount of fun with. And I think that the film is at its best when it's taking itself the least seriously. And I think that um, for as much as I think that it does get bogged down in mythology and stuff like that, and I think it definitely does. Yeah, I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not 100% sold on the way that it builds on slash adjusts to the mythology of Jason, but I do kind of fall in line with the fact that nine installments in, then there's nothing wrong with trying something else. And I think that it's a gutsy thing that they did. But I don't, I, I don't think it works all the way at the finish line. But there's good stuff in there. And yeah, I think that there's some really interesting character stuff and creating Jukes in a riot. <laughs> I, like, yeah, final word for me is that, yeah, like, I just love creating Duke. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, if Jason wasn't in this movie, I'd watch it just for creating Duke. Yep. You know I mean? <laughs> Finger breaking good. Paddy, uh, the big one is approaching for you. Uh, your new film, The Perished, world premiering at Frightfest. So first off, congratulations. Yes, oh, well thanks. done, my boy. Thank you so much. I wouldn't be here, Mr. Stewart, like doing, still making movies and shit if it wasn't for you allowing me to come on your set four years ago Jesus. and help you work on, help you make Remnant. So well, I'm sure genuinely. That, I'm sure that's not the case, Paddy, but at the same time, thank you for saying that. That's very lovely. Oh, well, I mean, genuinely, you gave me so much help at the start with, like, you helped with the Retribution script, which is why that film is dedicated to you. And, like, you've been a great supporter and help and friend and advisor, and it's been hugely, hugely appreciated. Yeah, Yeah, anyone else, uh, I will be charging by the finger for those services. (laughs) (laughs) He actually charged me by the finger as well. That's why my left arm doesn't work anymore. Um, (laughs) Um, So, Paddy, yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about The Paris? Because obviously um, uh, it's uh, a film with kind of like uh, some really pretty serious and still pretty contentious social issues at its heart. To talk about The Parish, I'll talk a little bit about The Three Don'ts because that was such a different movie that it kind of informs where The Parish goes because The Three Don'ts was like, it was a film made by a group of young men in Ireland just with an idea of going out into the woods and beating the shit out of each other. And it was just a lot of fun and just, but it still tackled this idea of kind of hyper-masculinity in Ireland. So almost entirely male cast and dealing with kind of like how toxic masculinity can affect relationships between young men in Ireland. So then when it came to The Perished and I started writing it, I really wanted to focus on uh, the women of Ireland and kind of the plights that they've they've had. And boy, have they had them like with the way that women in Ireland have been treated by um, 
the government where there's been scandals involving like um, their basic medical results not getting to them and women have, have died because of that. And there's been stuff involved with, you know, obviously the, the Catholic Church has had quite a hold in Ireland for probably the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, we're kind of getting away from that now, but it, it was the case. And um, basically in, in May of or in, in 2017, it was announced that there'd be a referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment, which is... Uh, an amendment that states that an unborn baby has the same rights as the mother, um, even in cases of medical emergency. And there was a case where a woman in Galway died um, because she couldn't have a procedure to basically, like, even though they knew the baby would die. It was very, all very, this is very heavy. I'm so sorry. I've gone through everything we've gone through. But yeah, it was all these very heavy social issues here around that. And um, it was a hotbed. People were... People were killing each other, not not literally, but like I was seeing it on social media that anybody who had an opinion or a viewpoint on this was just being torn down by the other side. And there was no communication between people or no empathy about like why a certain person would feel a certain way on these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw people on both sides who I knew their backstories and knew why they were arriving at their decision, mm-hmm. but they weren't talking to each other and they were just tearing each other down. And that's really the crutch of the parish for me is it's about communication and how when people don't talk about stuff, uh, tabooish ideas, that um, it can lead to an absolute breakdown and then tying that into a supernatural um, story. But the basic idea is it's a young woman who has had to leave Ireland to have an abortion mm-hmm. because it's it was it was illegal up to last year and there's still no legislation on it. So technically it still is. But she when she returns, obviously she can't tell anybody and it's super taboo and there's a massive stigma and shame around it. Um, so her best friend arranges for her to come and stay at his family's uh, holiday home, which happens to be an old parochial house uh, out in the middle of nowhere. And as she's recovering, she's kind of haunted by these visions of... Um, babies effectively and noises Mm -hmm. of of babies and uh it kind of toys with the idea of whether that is something that's physically happening or manifesting itself or whether it is um something that's going on in her head but also the house sits above a mass baby grave which is yet again something that really happened here Mm -hmm. there was many um, mass baby graves discovered which is also just supremely sad and tragic and horrible so Straight away, I, I, I wanted to talk about that because there was actually people I knew from other countries who didn't believe that that was actually a thing. Sure. So right. I wanted yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to kind of bring it to light. But yeah, so she's in the house and she's having these visions and we, we come to realize that it sits atop a, a mass baby grave. And so it goes from there to some pretty, pretty bleak places. Um, okay. But yeah. It, it's crazy because being Irish, we're we're incredibly self-deprecating people, and I I almost never say anything of the, like this. But it's a film I'm hugely hugely proud of, um, yeah. which is a change. <laughs> I've got I mean I've got to say, buddy, the, tra- the the trailer looks like it's really going to be something. I'm really looking I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Thank you. Yeah, me um, too, mate. And I don't mind telling you that while you're hugely proud of your film, I'm hugely proud of you. Ah, you're you're a legend. No, <laughs> I, well done, that I, man. Um, I, I have to say just quickly that I I couldn't have done it without everyone at Celtic Badger Media. I mean, Barry Fahey has been one of my biggest supporters on this side of the pond and just helped me get everything over the line. And But I mean, everyone, the cast were were absolutely incredible. And Courtney McKeown in particular, who plays the lead role, she had a lot of heavy lifting to do in this film and, and she really tackled it head on. So major kudos to all them because I couldn't make fuck all if it wasn't for them <laughs> coming and, and helping me do it. Yeah. 
Um, so it's on, it's on the Monday um, that's playing the Fright Fest uh, this year, isn't it? It is Monday twenty sixth, and we don't have times yet, but uh, I think it's it looks like it'll probably be a midday showing. So yeah, and it's on a good day because for we are Manny is on the same day, and uh, Rabbit, Banana Splits, uh, Satanic Panic. There's there's a lot of awesome films on that day. Yeah. So and, and every other day at Fright Fest this year. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm I'm hoping Paddy to do my usual drop in, but that's kind of up in the air just now for obvious reasons. Yes, of course. Uh, I mean, as I said to you, I I can't wait to just even. I don't know. I'm hoping once we get things sorted, even get out to you and be able to show you, sit down with you and watch the film. And I think one of the things that hopefully you'll be you'll be proud of with this film is that. The sound is good. We That's got a professional sound Please mixer. <laughs> we got a good sound mixer and a good sound designer. His name is Massimiliano Borghetti. He did the sound on Book of Monsters. Oh, nice, um, nice. So he's a really good dude. And uh, yeah, because I know myself, have, now having had a film with what I call professional sound design done, I now look back at my other stuff and go, oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> Paddy, so obviously, yeah, like um, we're kind of hitting a kind of exciting stretch for you. If people want to keep up with you, where can they do that online? Um, you can uh, follow me on, well, you can follow Celtic Badger Media is probably the best bet on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Celtic Badger Media. Um, and then on Twitter, it's Twitter on uh, forward slash Celtic underscore Badger. But the easiest way really now is to go to the our website, which is just www.celticbadgermedia.com because that has links off to all our social media and stuff so people can get to anywhere from there. And that's where all the news is going to be shared first anyway. Paddy, um, I'm really glad that we finally made this work. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this with us. Ah, oh, guys, thank you. It was my pleasure. I got to talk about Crate and Duke for fucking an hour and a half. <laughs> you got to talk about Crate and Duke for 80 minutes and the rest of the film for five. Exactly. We really did give uh, Crate and Duke a lot of airtime there, lads. <laughs> it was deserved. Stephen yeah. Williams earned that airtime. <laughs> Uh, Coming soon at the show, uh, Stephen Williams. Oh, uh, has to be done. Has to be done. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> Paddy, thanks so much. Thank you, man. Thank you, guys. Great to finally get Paddy on the show. Yes, yeah. Uh, and uh, apologies to everyone out there for having sat through the best part of an hour and a half. That, yeah, yeah. That, that, that ran a little long, but I, I think it was always going to when Paddy came on the show, especially when the film he chose was Jason Goes to Hell. And when it had Kate and Duke in it. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. And of course, uh, as you heard Paddy saying just there, if you're heading to Fright Fest this year, then uh, look out on Monday, The Perished, Paddy's film, getting its world premiere there. And uh, times to be confirmed, but when that happens, we'll be letting you know. We'll be, we'll be sharing it too. We will indeed. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, it, it looks pretty interesting. Yeah, I think it's I think I think it's a great idea, and it's a really cool approach to um, a really interesting idea. And I'm, yeah, I'm really looking forward to checking it. Yeah, and cool to see Paddy continue to grow and thrive as a filmmaker. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From small seeds, <laughs> great oaks grow. <laughs> but I guess with that, we're just about done for another one. God, yep, done. Boom. Yeah, next. Yeah, well, next is uh, Minisode 62 which will be coming your way of course at midnight on Monday as is tradition yeah we'll be yeah. doing all the usual stuff of course we'll be taking a look at what we've been watching this week uh, charting my progress through the Shockwaves 100 which right now is non-existent but I will have something in the can by then you better I will I will um, also we will of course be taking a look at your feedback playing Mitch's Pitches and letting you know everything that you need to know for episode 63 yep thank you Mitch for that that didn't look easy no 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 it was not um, but yeah um, we're tons of places as you know um, just check us out on whichever your preferred platform is mm-hmm. um, and whatever you're listening please please just take the little minute to drop us a like drop us a review drop us a rating 
Um, just send us some general love. Uh, that would be amazing because we love you for listening and yeah, continue to do so, please. That's all we ask. Yeah, yeah. Tell your pals all that stuff. That'd be great. Yeah. And if you do want to get in touch with us between now and Monday, loads of ways you can do that. Facebook and Instagram are Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC or email Strong Language Violent Scenes at gmail.com. Yep. I'm... And we've done this in a funny order. Yeah, yeah. we've done it back to front. I was about to do the podcast stuff again. <laughs> We are back on Monday. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget that it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chance. Goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.